Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. When we think about the founding of our country, two big ideas are going to come to mind. First, we'll think of the Revolutionary War, where the colonists overcame the British. And then we'll think about the creation of the Constitution. We the people, right? Those famous words. So the Revolutionary War and the Constitution are going to be familiar to all of us. They're parts of the story of the founding of America that we know. But what we often overlook is that a number of years passed between these two things. In fact, the British surrender at Yorktown, that's the event that effectively ended the war, that was in 1781. It wasn't until 1789 that the Constitution took effect. More than seven years passed in between. And during those years, what we call the United States weren't all that united. Different states had different priorities. They had different governments that often didn't get along with each other. In fact, one of the big reasons that the Constitutional Convention happened was because there was a real fear that the young nation was going to fall apart. People from Massachusetts didn't see themselves as having a shared purpose with people from Rhode Island or Virginia. It took effort and action from a lot of different people to forge a united country. Now, the signing of the Constitution was a very important step in this. It created a central government that all the states would recognize. But another important part of national unity was the change that took place gradually in people's hearts and minds. It didn't just happen the moment that the ink was dry on the Constitution. People had to loosen their grip on the idea that they were just Virginians or just Rhode Islanders or just Delawareans which is actually what people from Delaware are called. And somewhere this morning on the East Coast, a preacher is marveling at the fact that we call ourselves Montanans. And there's a reason we often aren't familiar with what people from other states call themselves. It's because somewhere along the way, most of us started to think of ourselves as Americans first and foremost. It took time for Americans to come together with one accord or with one shared purpose. And what we'll see today in the first chapter of the book of Acts is this. Jesus calls people from all walks of life to live with one accord as his church. Jesus rescues us from the consequences of our sins. And when he does that, he welcomes us into this big, wonderful, strange family that we call the church. And each of us comes into this family with unique life experiences. And the differences between those experiences mean we're often coming in with different perspectives and with different priorities. And just like 13 brand new states that just threw off the British Empire, it's going to be hard work for us to learn to live with one accord. So the passage we're going to look at today gives us a snapshot of the people Jesus originally called to be his church. 
And when we look a bit at what the Bible tells us about these people, we can see why some differences would have been present in this group. We'll also see how we can live with one accord despite those differences. So let's look at the scripture that we just heard read, Acts chapter 1. Now, for the message today, we're really going to zoom in on verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, Acts 1. But we're going to start the reading in the middle of verse 9, because that will give us some sense of where we are. We don't want to feel like we're parachuting into unknown territory. So we'll start right there in the middle of verse 9, where it says, As they were looking on. And at this point, we've, we've reached the moment where Jesus' ministry on earth is completed. At this point, Jesus has already died on the cross. God has raised him from the dead. And we're now about 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. About 40 days after that. And during these 40 days, Jesus has been speaking to his followers about the kingdom of heaven. He's been preparing them for what comes next. And now Jesus is going to ascend into heaven, where he'll stay until he returns. So as they, the disciples, were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John. And James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So we saw there that verse 14 began with the words, all these with one accord. Jesus' desire is for his people to be of one accord, or literally of one mind. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, captures this same idea. It begins this way. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. One accord, one mind. This is what we're talking about when we say Jesus calls people from all walks of life, to live with one accord as his church. That's the big idea we're going to be looking at today. What it means to live as God's people and to do that together. Now we know that as God's people, we are tasked with sharing Jesus' good news with others. And through that, we can grow the church. But in our verses today, the church hasn't really begun that mission yet. This is a brief historical pause between Jesus proclaiming the good news and the church going forth to do the same. And so what we're going to consider today is primarily the church looking within. This is us looking at one another. 
learning to live well with one another so that when we do look outward, we're going to be more effective. And we're going to take a look at this idea through three related ideas. We're going to look at differences among disciples. We'll talk about two specific differences that come out of our passage here. We'll talk about the hope that unites all Christians. And we'll talk about a key to living with one accord. Now, we won't be moving through them strictly in one, two, three order. We'll move back and forth a little bit, so don't panic when that happens. Now, if I start talking about the Revolutionary War again, that means I am going in circles, so then you should be concerned. But the best way to avoid that would be to dive right on in here. So let's consider differences among disciples. I'm going to read verse 13 again. Again, verses 13 and 14 will be our focus this morning. And when they had entered, that's entered Jerusalem, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. We have this list of 11 names. This is Jesus' original 12 disciples, minus Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Uh, Judas, the son of James, who's mentioned here, is a different Judas. So we have 11 names, and it's interesting that the text doesn't just lump them all together and say, the disciples. It names each one. These are individual people, each with a different set of life experiences. And we can get so used to hearing these names together, Peter, John, James, Matthew. It starts to sound like John, Paul, George, and Ringo, right? Like they're a package deal, as if they just automatically go together. But in fact, Jesus was the only thing that all of these men had in common. And yet, after we hear the names of all these different individuals in verse 13, verse 14 begins like this. It says, all these with one accord. One shared purpose would not have come naturally for this group. For some of them, it would have been unlikely they would have even gotten together in the same place. How unlikely? Well, how often do you see a lawyer sitting down for lunch with somebody who pours concrete for a living? Unless there's a lawsuit brewing against a rival cement company, you don't see that very often, right? The work that we do shapes our identity. And that identity often determines who it is we spend our time with. So we're going to be looking at the fisherman and the tax collector. It's the first difference we're going to look at that shows up here. So from the gospel accounts that come right before the book of Acts, we know that Andrew, Peter, James, and John were all fishermen. It's also possible that Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip may have been fishermen by trade as well. And fishing wasn't a hobby in those days. These were men who earned their living by doing hard dangerous, physical work. The life they knew would have been very different from what was known to Matthew, the tax collector. In our day, we don't really have a job that is a perfect equivalent for an ancient tax collector. He wasn't really very much like an IRS employee sitting somewhere in a cubicle. Um, but he would have been a very elite person. You might imagine a successful lawyer today or maybe the head of a company. Matthew worked for the powerful Roman government 
And he was a very wealthy man. So what we see here is that Jesus has called a very wealthy man to serve right alongside men of modest means. And money can be an uncomfortable topic for most of us. But it's not an uncomfortable topic for God. The Bible actually talks about money a lot. It talks about the importance of generosity. And as we glance a little bit further into the book of Acts, and we see the church learning to live with one accord, uh, what we find again and again is that generosity is just knit into that picture. For example, here's Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. You can look in your Bible if you like. Um, not all of the verses will be um, up on display. So this is Acts 2, 44 and 45. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. All who believed were together. Generosity was just part of this togetherness. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, reflects the same idea. It tells us, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. In the early days of the church, generosity abounded among God's people. It was an essential part of how those of great wealth and those of modest means could live together and live with one heart and one soul. And I'll tell you a story about what it means to be on the receiving end of Christian generosity. A number of years ago, I was having a conversation uh, with a missionary who our church supports. Now, this missionary serves overseas, but at the time he was here visiting. And he and I were just talking about all kinds of things. We were talking about life and faith. We were just having a good conversation. And after a while, he says to me, and this is, this is out of the blue from my perspective, he says, you should really come to a missions conference we're going to be having in Kentucky. Well, I wasn't a missionary. I had never been to a missions conference in my life. Had never been to Kentucky, for that matter. And I, I, I didn't know what to think of it, but I thought it sounded interesting. And a few days later, after he'd said that to me, I was having a conversation with a couple of our pastors, and I just mentioned the, invita the invitation, just almost as an afterthought in my mind. And then a few days after that, I got a call from one of our pastors, and someone, I don't know who, someone at this church had written a check for the full cost. My trip to Kentucky and the conference were completely paid for. I still have no idea who gave the money. And then someone who I hadn't even met at that point, literally a friend of a friend of a friend at this church, he offered to let me stay at his place for free while I was there. All I had to do was pack my bag. Now, I didn't become an overseas missionary. That was the main focus of the conference. I may never travel overseas to, to serve the church, but that readiness and willingness to give, just trusting God, but with whatever the outcome of that giving would be, that's what really left an impression on me. God's people are often ready and willing to give. Sometimes the hard part 
is to come up with the humility to share the need. Or in my case, just the hope or the desire. So what we clearly have seen here in the passages, the scriptures we've looked at, is that in the early days of the church, all were together. The fishermen were right alongside the tax collector. And by the grace of God, generosity was a key part of what drew them together. Now, while the Bible does talk a lot about money, it should never be assumed that money is going to be the answer to every need. And we also should not assume that generosity in the church is going to be a one-way street, as if the modern-day tax collectors, whoever they are, as if they just need to write a few more checks for the needs of the fishermen, and then everything will turn out all right. Sometimes it's going to be the tax collector who needs the fisherman's skills, right? Could be help with fixing up a house. Could be an animal for meat. And sometimes what we need most of all isn't a material thing or something you can buy with money. It's not something like that at all. Sometimes what a tax collector needs most is the wisdom, the insight, or the advice that only the fisherman has. And Matthew, our tax collector here, he understands that. He doesn't view himself as being higher in status than the disciples who had less money than he did. In fact, it's in the gospel that Matthew wrote that we find the first account of our four fishermen. Matthew, the tax collector, is the reason we know about these fishermen. He's the reason we know they were the first disciples that Jesus called. We know of their faith to just lay down their nets and follow Jesus because the tax collector thought it was important to tell us that. He spotlights the faith of these men. That's in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew doesn't mention himself in his gospel until chapter 10. And even then, his name is just in a list, one of all of the original disciples. Matthew doesn't look at these fishermen as needy, second-class Christians. He sees their story as more important than his own. He sees these men as brothers in Jesus Christ. He sees them as equals to live alongside with one accord. Now we've been talking about fishermen a little bit. And it's important to remember that Jesus was also a man with an ordinary, ordinary job. The Bible tells us that Jesus was a carpenter. We don't know exactly what kind of carpenter Jesus was. Some people have speculated he might have been a stonemason because there were a lot of incredible stone buildings um, in the area he lived in. We don't know, but what we do know is that Jesus worked with his hands. Jesus chose to do physical work. When Jesus took on flesh and entered our world, he also entered into our struggles, into our toil. Jesus chose to work and to sweat in the hot sun. See, Jesus is the son of the living God. But he set aside the perfect joy he knew with God the Father. He set it aside. He laid that down. He became a human being. And he endured difficult work during his time on earth. And he chose, more, he chose to endure more than just work. Jesus chose to face temptation. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 explains it like this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus faced the same temptations we've all faced, but he never gave in to sin. Jesus knew the temptation of the fisherman. When a fisherman's net comes in empty, that fisherman knows hunger. Jesus knew hunger too. He fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And when he did that, the devil tempted him to sin so that he could eat. Now, a hungry fisherman might be tempted to cheat or steal to eat. But the devil tempted Jesus to turn stones into bread. But Jesus resisted. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus also knew the temptation of the tax collector, the temptation of great wealth and power. After Jesus refused to turn the stones into bread, the devil took him to a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. The devil promised to give Jesus all of these kingdoms if Jesus would fall down and worship him. But again, Jesus refused. He resisted with the word of God. He said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus faced the temptation of the ordinary worker, and he faced the temptation of the powerful elite. He faced the temptations that you have known and that I have known. But where we fell and sinned, Jesus has remained faithful. This is why Jesus is the hope that unites all Christians. See, whoever you are, whatever kind of path you've walked through life, you can draw near to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. Earlier, we looked at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It told us that Jesus has been tempted as we have been tempted. The next verse, Hebrews 4, 16, tells us this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In times of temptation, all of us have fallen short and sinned. And when we sin, we commit an offense against God himself. And the just penalty for that sin is death. But Jesus, who lived without sin, he died the death that paid the penalty for our sin. He died on a cross at the hands of powerful religious leaders. But he was raised by death, raised from death, by a power far greater. Jesus was raised by the Spirit of God himself. And this small group of people we see gathered together in the first chapter of Acts, these fishermen and this tax collector, these men and women praying with one accord, they are about to be filled by that same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave. And that same Holy Spirit is available to all who place their faith in Jesus. It's available to all who draw near to his throne of grace. We don't have to work our way to Jesus. We can't. 
But Jesus has come to us. He came into our world. He entered into our struggles. He faced our temptations, and he overcame them. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death. He made a way so we could avoid the everlasting death that is hell. And he offers us mercy and grace instead. Mercy and grace for every time of need in this life. Everlasting grace that will draw us into Jesus' presence forever when this life is over. We will know Jesus' full presence in a place, a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus will reign as king and all his people will live forever with one accord. but we aren't there yet. We get glimpses of Jesus' presence in our lives today. We can believe this gospel today and we can respond with generosity today. We can get glimpses right now in the deep bonds we find between Christians who come from very different walks of life. But it's only glimpses for now. Things still break down our differences can still erupt in division. And every time these, these divisions bring difficulty, we might think, well, we need to remind ourselves of this good news we just heard. We need to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. And this is true, but when we do that, it doesn't follow that all our problems just go away. Every Sunday we get together, we remind ourselves of this news, of what Jesus has done for us. It's something we should be eager to talk about with Christians every day of the week. But sometimes important things come up, and we have to address them head on. There are some cases where it's actually dodging to say, well, let's not talk about any of that tough stuff. Let's let's just talk about Jesus. Here's a straightforward example of this. Say a Christian friend comes up to you and says, say, I wanted to talk to you about something. Remember those jokes you were making when we were all hanging out after church last week? I, I, I wanted to talk to you about those jokes. I, I didn't think they were very thoughtful. Now, if you hear this and your first response is, well, but, but it's, all about, it's, it's all about Jesus. It's, it's really Jesus we need to focus on. And that particular case, if you did that, you'd be using Jesus to try to dodge and avoid an important conversation, right? A conversation that Jesus probably wants you to have. So Jesus gives us himself. He is the hope and the grace that unites all Christians. He also gives us the ability to enter into hard and necessary conversations with grace. And that's what we want to keep in mind as we touch on another difference among disciples. So Acts chapter 1, once again. Earlier we looked at verse 13, and now we'll turn turn our attention to 14. It reads, all these, that's the original disciples, whose names we went through earlier, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It's not just a fisherman 
It's not just fishermen and a tax collector who have gathered together in the upper room. It's not only the powerful and the laborer. It's men and women who Jesus has called together. So this is the second difference we're going to take a look at. Now, just for clarity, early in verse 13, we were talking about Jesus' original disciples, and they were all men. Now, in verse 14, we see that women are here in the upper room as well. So when I use this this title, Differences Among Disciples, in this case, I'm using the word disciple in the way that Jesus uses it in Matthew 28. That's when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So the word disciple can refer to the original disciples, and it can also refer to any faithful follower of Jesus. That's the sense in which I'm using it here. Now, when it comes to differences between men and women in Jesus' church, there's a whole lot that can be said. There's a lot that must be said if men and women are to care for one another well with one accord. If we are truly to live with one heart and soul. In fact, it's such an important topic that it deserves a sermon all to itself. But instead of keeping us here until mid-afternoon, I'm just going to point us to one verse. And this verse is the foundation for everything else we might say on this topic as Christians. So let's turn to the very beginning of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, and let's look at verse 27. This tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is one of the very earliest statements the Bible makes about people, about human beings. And in this verse, we find two essential ideas. First, we find that all people are created in the image of God. That word man, the first one you see there, that's talking about all of mankind, all human beings. So that's the first first idea. All people are created in the image of God. And then second, in those verses, we find there is a distinction between men and women, between male and female. So briefly, what it means to be created in the image of God. When we hear the word image, we might think of one thing that looks like another. That's what we usually think of when we hear this word, but that's not really what this idea is getting at. What the image of God is really getting at is our capacity as humans to reflect God's character. God loves, and humans likewise have the capacity to love. God is just and human beings are capable of doing acts of justice. God is merciful, and we too can show mercy. God wants us to avoid sin, and when we do, we reflect God's image to the greatest possible degree. Being created in God's image also means that as human beings, we have a measure of authority over the earth that we live on, as well as the animals. And we have the ability to transform the world around us that God has created. If we exercise this this authority faithfully, we can transform our world in ways that benefit people. Think about farms that produce food or hospitals that heal the sick. 
These are just a couple of many, many possible examples. Many examples of how we, as humans, can transform the world around us for the better. How we can do that as image bearers of God. Again, to be created in the image of God means we have the capacity to reflect God's character and the ability to transform the world we live in for the better. All people are created in the image of God. So all people have value and dignity in the eyes of God. Every man, every woman, every child. So men and women are equal in value and dignity in the sight of God. Men and women are also distinct. One of the most obvious distinctions between a man and a woman is the role that each has in procreation, right? The role in bearing more children. And, and this, this is uh, just one. This is just one of many, many distinctions uh, that we could talk about. But again, to delve further into this topic would, would be a sermon in its own right. So I just want to focus on this and get at this today. Genesis 1 makes it clear that women and men are equal in value and distinct from one another. And in this sinful world, you're going to be pressured into making a false choice. Some voices in our world are going to push for option one of this false choice. These voices will try to blur the distinction between men and women. They'll tell you this distinction doesn't matter. They may tell you there's no meaningful distinction between men and women at all. That's false. That's false option number one. And there are also voices in our world pushing for a second false option. False option number two recognizes there's a distinction between men and women, but it fails to emphasize that both men and women bear the full and rich dignity of being created in the image of God Almighty. And when that, hap- when that happens, what we can end up, end up with as a result are shallow caricatures, one-dimensional pictures of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. You can end up with a distinction, but you lack the depth and the richness of everything the Bible has to say about manhood and womanhood. Think about these two false options, like two ditches on either side of a road that you're trying to drive down. You can, become, you can become so concerned about staying out of the ditch on this side that you start to veer dangerously close to the ditch on the other side. And in churches that preach the word of God with faithfulness, we do a pretty good job of warning people about ditch number one. The voices pushing us to dive into ditch number one are growing louder right now in our society. But thankfully, faithful churches have resisted this pressure. We've stood firm, and we continue to say what Genesis 1 says, that men and women are beautifully and wonderfully distinct. But sometimes as we seek to steer clear of ditch number one, it's possible for church culture to get dangerously close to ditch number two. 
And what's especially concerning is if the church winds up in ditch two and we settle for a shallow picture of what a man is and a shallow picture of what a woman is, then we might wind up sprinkling that result with Bible verses. And that can be very problematic. It's like putting beautiful frosting on a terrible cake. It looks good. It sounds pretty Christian, biblical perhaps, but the substance isn't there. You take a bite and the cake turns out to be bitter. The challenge for men and women to live with one accord is significant. We're distinct. But by God's grace, each day can grow a little more insight in each of us. We're wiser today than we were yesterday. And by God's grace, we'll be wiser yet tomorrow. God can keep us well clear of both ditches. As the church, we can affirm the equal dignity of all people and the beautiful God-given distinction between men and women. This is what we need. And it's a portrait that our world desperately needs. So we've looked at some of the differences within the church that these verses reveal. We've talked about how whoever you are, Jesus understands your weakness. Jesus has been tempted as you have been tempted. But Jesus overcame temptation and sin. This is why Jesus is the hope that unites all Christians. Once again, Jesus calls people from all walks of life to live with one accord as his church. But how do we put this into practice? How do we learn more and more with each day to live with one accord? Here it is. Acts 1, verse 14, right at the beginning of it, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer is a key to living with one accord. Prayer is calling upon God to do the things that we cannot do ourselves. Prayer admits our weakness and it relies on God's great strength. We've talked about hard things today. We've talked about real differences, real sources of division within the church. But before we grab for our wallets and look to be generous, before we grab a hold of that steering wheel and try to steer clear of the ditches, we have to turn to Jesus and simply say, help us. And if there's one thing you take out the door with you this morning, I hope it's the good news that Jesus saves sinners from all walks of life. But I hope you'll take two things with you. Because I hope you'll respond to Jesus and really pray. I want you to carve out time from your day. I want you to set aside the things you think you'd rather be doing and pray. I want you to pray every day that God's people would live with one accord. Jesus has to teach us to listen to one another. He has to teach us to elevate the needs of others above our own needs. Living with one accord 
is hard, but God's help is enough. And these differences we looked at today, these were just within the first small group of people that Jesus called. All of these people at this point, they're Jewish. They share a common religious tradition. Most of these people were from the Galilee region of Israel, just like Jesus. The church only expands from here. In Acts chapter 2, we see Jewish people from every nation under heaven coming to faith. And in Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles receive Jesus. That's the people who aren't even Jewish. Most of us here today are effectively Gentiles. God has expanded the reach of his church to welcome us. And when we leap all the way to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we're told something absolutely extraordinary. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, speaks of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. All of these people are praising Jesus with one accord. And look at where we stand today. We live in a nation where Jesus' name is proclaimed in town after town. And out of all the nations of the world, America is where there are truly people with ancestors from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The original disciples would be blown away to see how God's promises have been fulfilled in our country. And yet they would also be grieved to see the division. Because in the American church, there's a greater source of division than anything we've talked about today yet. Nothing divides our church like what is often called race or ethnicity. Nothing comes close. Once again, this is a topic that needs its own sermon. I mention it because if I stood up here and talked about differences that can divide Jesus' followers, but I sidestepped this one, I don't think that would be right. It's that significant in our day. And it's been significant for hundreds of years. You've heard the expression, the elephant in the room. It means something that's very big and very obvious, but at the same time, nobody wants to talk about it. Division that is tied to our sense of race and ethnicity, this is the elephant in the sanctuary. It's the elephant sitting in the middle of the American church. Now, your response might be, I don't like to talk about that kind of stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. And that might be perfectly honest. Or you might have an excuse, something like this. I I live in Montana, so that's a problem for some other church, some other people to worry about. But try setting your excuses aside and just pray. 
pray that we would understand that if one member of the body of Christ suffers, all suffer together. Pray that we would understand that if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Pray that old wounds would begin to heal. Pray that you would get to take part in that healing. As you persist with this prayer, I think you'll be surprised by who God brings into your life. You might even start to see Montana with new eyes. Nothing in this world is more powerful than prayer. And nothing unites God's people like prayer. It doesn't matter how great or important you appear in this world. To pray, you have to bow down in your heart to Jesus. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant you might appear. When you pray, you speak directly to the Almighty God. Let's look at John's Gospel, chapter 17. Let's look at John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus here is speaking to his original disciples. And this is what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so great, so glorious, so mighty, and you are so mighty to save. You sent Jesus into this world. You allowed him to die on a cross so that we might be saved by faith. And you raised him, Father, and help us to remember that this Holy Spirit that you raised your son Jesus with, that this spirit dwells within every person you have called to faith. Help us to remember that each person we meet, each person is your image bearer, and help us to live with brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to live with one accord, Father. We offer this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.